The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 12th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. All right, let's go ahead and grab your Bible and open it up to the book of Galatians, the New Testament letter of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 5 this morning, and if you were with us last week as we were journeying through Galatians, you may think to yourself, well, didn't we do that last week? Isn't that where we were? Well, yes, we were, but we're going to do it again. Um, About six or seven, I have to go back and look, six or seven people uh, in the church emailed me, uh, and all of the emails were pretty similar in, in, in one vein. There are a few verses and a few statements that Paul makes in these verses that were confusing to some or some wanted clarity about. And I had intended to clarify it this morning, but your emails just, you know, well, let's just do it again, right? So there are a couple statements that Paul makes in these verses that that some people hear and think, is Paul contradicting himself? Is Paul saying one thing to us, but then saying something else? And what's that actually mean for how we live and how we respond? So let's read Galatians chapter six, verses one through five together. We'll pray for God's help in us hearing what he has to say, and then we're going to walk through them again with an eye towards some of these things that Paul says that may at first seem a bit confusing, but as we unpack them, they'll become clarifying and hopefully encouraging. So Galatians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time and the privilege we have this morning to be gathered together And we are trusting that as you have said, your spirit working together with your word will continue to do the work of transforming us into the image and likeness of your son. We ask that you would do that for our joy and your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a guest with us this morning, let me just say this. We've had a a lot of guests this morning in all the services. We are so glad that you are here, privileged to have you with us. Uh, I want to explain something to you really quickly. And for those of you that call Redemption Hill home, hopefully this will come to you by way of reminder and encouragement. But as I just prayed, we do believe that God's word working through God's spirit is God's primary. It's his chief means for the transformation of his people. I mean, God's primary means, his chief means for transforming his people into the image and likeness of his son, his chief means for establishing the church and even growing the church, the chief means of God is his word through his spirit. So what that means is that at this church, we are unapologetically people of God's word. That's why if you're a guest with us this morning, we take our time to walk through an entire book of the Bible one at a time, verse by verse, thought by thought. And so in May, some of you were with us when we began our journey through the book of Galatians. It's, it's been a fun journey, and this week we could be one step closer to being finished, but we're not. I'll be really honest with you, I'm having a very hard time saying goodbye to Galatians. Um, I had a lot of anticipation in my heart, uh, approaching our time together in Galatians. 
Some of you may have heard us say it over the last few months. If you're a guest with us, this will be new to you. But in January, uh, we will celebrate the 10th anniversary of Redemption Hill as a local church here in Richmond. Um, and in the 18 months to two, two years kind of leading into that, it was weighing on my mind. And as we got closer and thinking about what are we going to talk about, what are we going to go through as we get closer to that moment, that time of celebration of what God's done here, uh, it seemed clear to me that the book of Galatians was the right place for us to be leading up to that time because the book of Galatians uniquely, not, not only, but uniquely helps us to not only remember what matters most, but even looking forward to what God may and his grace do in this church if he so wills in the next 10 years, help to recalibrate our hearts towards what matters most. The book of Galatians is a book about the gospel. The book of Galatians is a book that drives home gospel truth and a book that exposes gospel culture. Those two things are things that I pray Redemption Hill is marked by in the coming years and the coming generations. A church that treasures gospel truth and a church that's known for a display of gospel culture. In fact, I'm going to try to help for those of you that have been with us just for the last couple of weeks or, or even if you're a guest and hopefully if you've been with us the whole journey, this will serve as helpful to get to the questions that you sent and the verses I want to touch on again. I'm going to take the scenic route. I'm going to help us see how they fit into the context of everything that Paul has said because you can divide the book of Galatians almost into two parts. Part one, gospel truth. Part two, gospel culture. I mean, the first four chapters of this book, the the bulk, the front half of this letter that Paul wrote is really about what we can call gospel truth. You may remember chapter one, Paul explains it as he's writing the letter, but these churches that were in the region of Galatia and the men and the women that made up these churches, they were on the edge of destruction, destruction in soul. They had heard the gospel, they had believed the gospel, the church had been established in the region, Paul had moved on to go and proclaim the gospel in other places, and as Paul moved on, different teachers moved in, and they brought with them a distortion of the gospel, they began teaching and preaching to these churches, and this distortion was simply this, yes and amen to Jesus dying in your place for your sins. You must believe on Jesus for salvation, but in addition to faith in Christ, you needed rigid adherence to the Mosaic law. Jesus plus your obedience is what guarantees you righteousness before God. Jesus plus your obedience is how you know that you really are saved. And Paul said in chapter one, these teachers had come in and they were troubling the churches. If you were with us, you may remember that that trouble, that word that he used, it's an image of a ship out at sea that's caught in a huge storm that's on the edge of capsizing or destruction. That's what was happening in the hearts of God's people. These gospel distortions were troubling them. They were on the edge of destruction. And out of love, Paul writes this letter. And in the first four chapters, the front bulk of this letter, Paul comes at the truth of the gospel and the error of this distortion with tremendous repetition. If you were with us, it may seem like for the first half of the letter, Paul or or myself was a broken record. But Paul needed to repeat what he was saying. Sometimes teachers need to repeat the reality and the truth of what they're saying because you and I are very prone to forgetting what matters most. In his commentary on Galatians, you heard us say it in the beginning, Martin Luther writes about this and Luther would say that most necessary is the truth of the gospel, that we should know this article well 
teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. You and I are prone to forget the beauty, the simplicity, and the power, and the sufficiency of the gospel. And when we find ourselves prone to forgetting the treasuring power of the gospel, we find our souls unsteady and unstable and ripe for distortion. So Paul spends the first half of the letter reminding them and proclaiming to them again that salvation from God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Every single one of them, every single one of us, every single man, woman, child who has ever been born on the face of this earth was born dead in sin and trespass. They were born at odds, in enmity with God and in need of rescue in need of restoration, in need of salvation. And in themselves and in yourself, in myself alone, we cannot or ever could not do anything necessary to bridge that gap, to fix that problem. That's why Paul reminds them over and over and over again that salvation comes not by your obedience to the law, not by your work for God, But the good news of the gospel first and foremost is not what you ought to do for God or have to do for God, but what God has done for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saved, restored, rescued, made right, justified by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone, which is why in chapter two, you may remember Paul would say, I'm not going to nullify the grace of God because if righteousness, right standing before God if that was possible through the law, through our obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, he's gonna come back to it in his repetition in chapter five and say that if that were the case, if we could be justified before God, made right before God, forgiven by God through our obedience to the law, Paul will say in chapter five, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. No, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who ever lived the life that you and I were created to live. A life of perfect, joyful obedience to the Father. He is the only truly ever righteous one to walk on the face of the earth, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, died in your place for your sin, the death that you deserve to die. As we talked about last week, he bore in his body on the cross the burden for your sin, your guilt, your shame, and the death that you and I deserve to die. And God vindicated his substitutionary sacrifice in our place for our sin by raising him from the dead. And so Paul has said over and over and over again, there are only two ways for you to approach justification or righteousness with God. There's only two options for you when you think about how to be made right before God. There's either the path of the law, and do you know what the path of the law requires? Paul said it over and over again, do you remember? Perfect obedience. You can believe that you can be made right before God through your obedience to the law, but that path requires you to be perfect all the time in every aspect. Or there's the path of faith. And do you know what the path of faith depends upon and requires? The perfection and perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus. There's only two ways you can think about being made right before God and only one actually accomplishes it. Salvation, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
to the glory of God alone. When the gospel is rightly understood and comprehended and believed in the heart, who else is there to actually boast about? If our salvation, our righteousness, our justification came not by anything that we did, but only by what God did for us through his son by grace, who else is there to boast in? Paul's gonna get to that at the end of Galatians chapter six, so I will stop there. But Paul, he's been like a, the best picture I could have in my mind, he's been like a dog with a bone when it comes to the gospel. You simply can't get it away from him and he simply won't let it go. And I want you to understand that his repetition and the words that he uses, the pictures he's painted, the things that he has said, it's not coming purely out of a place of frustration with the church and, and anger with the false teachers. Ultimately, behind both of those things, Paul has said what he has said out of a place of love for God's people. Paul knows that the only true anchor for unsteady souls is the gospel. Their souls were being shaken to the edge of destruction by distortion. Their souls were unsteady. And unsteady souls are vulnerable souls. Unsteady souls present the perfect environment for gospel distortion to flourish. In fact, if you've been reading CBR with us, community Bible reading, you remember a few weeks ago we were in 2 Peter and, and my wife actually helped me to see this more clearly. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter just goes off on the fact that there are going to be teachers who are going to come into the churches and Peter says they're going to bring in destructive secret teachings. They're going to bring in distortions of the gospel. And Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that these distortions and these teachers, they entice unsteady souls. Souls that are not continually, daily anchored in the steady work of the gospel, who Christ is for them and promises to always be for them. When the gospel is not anchoring and steadying our soul, we find ourselves in a place of unsteadiness and we find ourselves vulnerable to distortion. The antidote, Paul knows it, to being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by everything that's being thrown out in the world today, from being led astray or falling prey to the distortion of the truth. He knows the only real way to be steadied in soul is by the truth of the gospel. The only thing capable of anchoring our hearts is the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first four chapters of this book, four out of six chapters, Paul has been trying to drop the anchor of gospel truth over and over and over again that we might hear it. God by grace imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus. A righteousness that is not our own. It was given to us by grace. And then Paul masterfully I wish I could do it when I talk the way Paul does it when he writes. Paul masterfully moves on from this continual pounding of gospel truth to the church into the subtle impact of the gospel on the church. See, the second part of the letter moves into this reality. Gospel truth, when truly believed, produces gospel culture. Gospel truth, when truly believed by God's people, produces gospel culture. So in chapters five and six, Paul begins to move into the impact of gospel truth on God's people as they're increasingly believing it together. Yes, God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us, but God also empowers us by his spirit to be a living reflection of his grace and truth. So in chapter five, Paul begins to help us to see more clearly 
That it's God the Holy Spirit in us who is at work in us to produce in us and through us the fruit of his presence and the fruit of his character in our lives. You and I don't produce that fruit. Go back and read Galatians chapter five, the fruit of God's spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We don't produce that. We can't strategize for that in churches. God the Holy Spirit promises that as we're increasingly steadied by the gospel and the spirit of Christ is increasingly working in our lives, he produces that fruit in us and through us. Our responsibility is to faithfulness to the gospel. And as he continues to produce that fruit in our lives, God is empowering us by his spirit to live as reflections of his truth and grace. And in that together, we continue to walk, as Paul said, in step with his spirit. Paul begins to move from the truth of the gospel to the impact of the truth on the lives of his people. And in chapters five and six, he gives us a bit of a more specific snapshot of what a culture cultivated by the gospel looks like. And one of the things I I want you to see, which is why I'm kind of going the long scenic route to these five verses again, because some of you have been with us for pieces of it. Some of you have been with us for all of it. Some of you haven't been with us for any of it. I want you to capture this. Go back and look at it for yourself this week. When Paul lays down the truth of the gospel, the anchoring realities of the gospel, and begins to move on to what that gospel does in and through us as a people, I want you to understand that Paul has been very clear that God never commands us to do anything that he wants us to do on our own. Did you catch that? In chapter two, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Gospel truth. In chapter three, Paul says, through faith, God supplies the spirit of Christ, gospel truth. God, by grace through faith in Christ, has imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. Our standing before God is secure in Jesus, and God has given us his spirit to empower us to be living reflections of his truth and grace. And then Paul says in chapter five, through the spirit that God gave us, it's the spirit that produces the fruit of love. So that when you get into what the culture looks like in chapter six, verse two, Paul says it's through love that we fulfill the law of Christ. So what God calls us to do in obedience to fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love, comes out of a fruit of what God has already done for us in the gospel. He never commands us to do anything on our own. He gives us everything we need and is continuing to work out in us everything that we need to do all that he's called us to do. And last week, we just looked specifically at two aspects of this gospel culture that Paul's talking about in Galatians, the ministries of restoration and the ministries of burden bearing. And I won't go into detail about those again because I want to get to the specific questions that came and and, and fill out the picture that Paul is painting. But, But one thing we need to be reminded of and understand is that When the gospel begins to anchor and continually anchors God's people in the reality of who they are in Christ, part of the gospel culture that's produced out of that is a true interdependence amongst God's people. We talked about this a bit last week. An interdependence, which is simply a healthy sense of need for one another. An appropriate sense of needing one another and being needed by one another. We talked a bit about how gospel truth, it does not produce a sense of independence where we feel like other people need us, but we don't need them. 
But the one thing that we skimmed over last week and some of the questions came in relation to and it kind of ties into one of these seeming contradictions is that the gospel also does not produce in us an unhealthy sense of codependence. There can be a sense of codependence or overdependence that our hearts are given into when we feel like we need people more than they need us or we need people to need us more than we need them. See, Paul gets at this in chapter six, verse five. This is what one of your questions was about. Paul says in chapter six, verse five, each of us is gonna have to bear his own load. So in verse two, when Paul said, we're all called in this gospel culture to a ministry of burden bearing, and then he comes down a couple of verses later and says, but each of us are gonna have to bear our own load. Is he contradicting himself? Is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? Did he forget what he said? Did he put his pen down? Did he put the quill down, go off, get something to eat, get something to drink, come back and forget what he had just written and say something else? Or do they go together? See, if you were with us last week, you may remember that the word that Paul used for a burden in chapter six, verse two, that's a word that, that talks about something that is so large or weighs so much that whatever it was designated to be transported by can't carry it by itself. So whether it was an animal, whether it was a boat, whether it was a person, a burden is not dictated specifically by how much something weighs, but by what it weighs in proportion to what the person, the animal, or the boat can carry. Does it make sense? A burden was something that that means of transport, person, animal, boat, whatever, could not carry on its own. But when Paul gets to chapter six, verse five, he uses a completely different word. The word he uses that we translate load, it doesn't mean the same thing that burden means. The word that he uses there that we translate load, it's used in other places in the Bible and it's used in other places in literature of Paul's day. And it was used in the Bible to talk specifically about a baby in a mother's womb. Used in the Old Testament to talk about a bag that a sojourner or a traveler would carry on a journey. That's the same way it's used in other literature of Paul's day. It's something that each of us is responsible to carry that we can carry that's appropriate to our ability. So what Paul is saying in chapter six, verse five, is that there are going to be loads, going to be responsibilities in this life that you and I are called by God to carry, that we're responsible for. It's different than the ministry of burden bearing. This carrying our own load that we're responsible for, it means that it would be wrong of us to assume that others should have to carry some of our own load. It would be wrong of us to actually take from someone else the responsibility of the load that they're called to carry. Writers will talk about this verse and this is where they'll get the idea of the overdependence that our hearts can fall into when we can begin to believe that every single thing we have in this life, every single opportunity, every single hardship, every single struggle is something that someone else is meant to come and take from us. One commentator will call it high maintenance Christians. This wasn't, this isn't, I should say, unique to us. This was something that was a reality. It's a reality in everyone's heart and you, you see it play out in the hearts of Jesus' disciples even after his resurrection. You may remember the story that after Jesus' resurrection, he's walking with his disciples and, and Jesus clarifies for Peter one aspect of the load that he is going to be responsible for carrying as a disciple of Jesus. Right? You have this responsibility as my disciple to carry and it's yours. Do you remember what it was? Peter, part of the load that you're going to carry is that you're going to die a martyr's death for following me. 
Do you remember Peter's response? He's walking with Jesus. Other disciples are in proximity. Peter listens to Jesus and he turns around and he looks at John. Then he looks back at Jesus and he says, well, what about him? Do you remember Jesus' response? Jesus looked back at Peter and he said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. There is a load that you're responsible for and it's yours to carry. John is not responsible for your load. You're responsible for your load. You're not responsible for John's load. John is responsible for John's load. Your load, John's load, you follow me. See, it's why, one, one kind of example here, that how it kind of plays out practically, just to kind of give you a, a big picture. You'll hear us around here say in, in different times, in different spaces, that we are so grateful to have the privilege to be able to partner with parents here to encourage and equip them in the discipleship of their children. We counted a tremendous honor and a tremendous privilege to help parents disciple their children, not only in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but in the joy of the gospel. But we're very clear about something. The discipleship of your children to a joy of the gospel is not our load to carry. As parents, that's your load to carry. We get the privilege to come alongside you to help equip you and encourage you in it. It's why for the majority of our RH kids classes, they're studying a curriculum that goes through the Bible in three years, but in each grade and in each age, it does it in a way that's more appropriate for them so that when you go home, you can talk to all your kids from different classes about the same thing. And that curriculum has a devotional that goes with the Old Testament and the New Testament to help you go through the same thing Monday through Friday before Sunday. It's why we have student communities for middle schoolers. It's why when Ray got up here and talked about it a few weeks ago, we're thinking about the fact that in four years, there will be over 80 middle school students in this church, barring anyone else being added or born to this church. And we're thinking, how do we help encourage and equip you in your load? Because it's your responsibility to disciple them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We get the privilege to encourage and equip you in that. It would be wrong for us to take that load from you. It would be wrong for you to assume that we're supposed to carry that load for you. Does it make sense? We live in a culture where we're encouraged in every way, shape, form, or fashion to find someone else to carry our loads. One writer was very helpful in this. He said that here, Paul demolishes the victim mentality of modern Western culture. We're responsible in every way to God for our actions. Each of us must live his life before God. And we're all going to have to give an account or an answer for the deeds done by us. See, this is something that you miss partly in the English. Paul in chapter six, verse five, this idea of us having to carry our own load is written in the future tense. So Paul is talking about the responsibilities, the obligations, and the opportunities that God gives us in this life that we're responsible for. That's our backpack, that's our load. But there's going to come a day of reckoning that God has talked about. When each of us are gonna have to stand before him and give an account, not towards our salvation. Our salvation is secure in Christ, yes and amen, now and forevermore. But we're going to have to give an account for how we carried our load. The things we said, the things we thought, the things we did, the things we didn't do. In that day of reckoning, no one else can carry your load. You can't give it to someone else. You can't say, well, they had it. I didn't have it. You can't give it. That's yours. That's what Paul is talking about. 
Luther was very helpful on this when he was writing to his church. Luther said, here's an example. A faithful sexton, do you know what a sexton is? Sounds like a weird word these days, doesn't it? But it's an old English word for the person who was responsible for the church's property. Those old cathedrals, those old buildings. The sexton would usually live in the building itself and he was the one that was responsible for its upkeep and maintenance. Luther was writing about this and and Luther said, a faithful sexton is no less pleasing to God with his gift than a preacher of the gospel is for he serves God in the same faith and the same spirit. Luther said, this is true because God will not judge the sexton on the basis of his ability to preach and he won't judge the preacher on the basis of his ability to repair the church. God is going to judge us all, not towards salvation, but towards the life we lived on the basis of our calling, of our gifts and our obedience. So do your own work. Do it without comparing yourself to anyone else. Families who have chosen for mom to stay home and spend time with the kids and raise the kids at home, quit comparing yourself to those who haven't. If that's what he's called you to, that's the load. Do it well. Luther said, you have this responsibility. For one day, you will have to answer to God, both for what you've done and for what you've left undone. See, Paul isn't contradicting himself. Paul is helping us to see That gospel truth, when it's truly believed, when it's truly leaned into, it doesn't produce independent people who think they don't need other people. And it doesn't produce overly codependent people who think everybody else should handle everything about their life. It produces truly interdependent people who have a healthy and appropriate sense of being needed and of being needed by others. And recognizing that there are going to be times when we have the privilege of helping to share the burdens that others are carrying, but that each of us, by the grace of God, is responsible for the life that God has called us to. That's the gospel culture. As we're increasingly anchored in Christ, our souls steadied by the gospel. Paul wants us to see the freedom that's ours because of the gospel. Gospel culture produces the most steady and stable people on the face of the earth. It's only being anchored in the reality of the gospel that allows us and even compels us in the courage to get underneath the burdens that others are carrying close enough to being able to take some of the weight on ourselves. It's only gospel steadiness that gives us the courage to step into situations where brothers and sisters are caught in transgression and sin. It's only gospel steadiness that gives us the right perspective to recognize that there are responsibilities in our lives that we're going to have to answer for. See, Paul is painting a picture of a culture, of a people who live anchored in the gospel, that God does something miraculous amongst, that produces a picture of his truth and grace that's absolutely irresistible to people that he's calling to himself. It's why last week we said these ministries, this gospel culture, these things that the gospel calls us to with each other, they're some of the greatest missionary work you will ever do. Gospel culture produced by gospel truth is utterly irresistible to a watching world that God is calling to himself. And so I want you to understand that your pastors, we we see our role as, as laboring like Paul to cultivate steady souls anchored in Christ. And we, and we see our role in that not as something that we lord over you, but like Paul told the Corinthians, we do it. We work together for your joy in it. 
That was so helpful for me as I was thinking about this whole letter to understand that everything Paul wrote, every word he wrote, specifically he chose in this letter for these churches, even by God's grace for us to hear now, every single word he chose, he wrote with an eye towards not your shame, not your guilt, not your condemnation, but your joy. Your joy. Which is why in these verses, chapter 5, verse 25, down through chapter 6, verse 5, when, God, when Paul begins to, to portray the specificities of this gospel culture, he actually says more about a warning towards what can destroy it than he does the specifics of what it looks like. This is kind of what I wanted to get to, but I took the long route there. There is a singular, tremendous threat to our joy and steadiness in the gospel and as God's people. Do you know what it is? Paul helps us to see it very clearly. It's our own pride. In chapter five, verse 25, through chapter six, verse five, Paul says more in these verses warning us about our pride than he does specifying the picture of gospel culture. Pride is the greatest threat to gospel culture amongst God's people. You know why? Because the interdependence that the gospel produces amongst God's people, the transparency, the honesty, the vulnerability, the relationship, the proximity, it puts us into a place where unchecked pride can use that closeness, use that transparency, use that vulnerability in a destructive way. Unchecked pride will allow, when we get close to one another like this, unchecked pride will produce in us the fruit of condemnation, condemning our neighbor possibly for needing our help, condemning ourselves for needing their help. Unchecked pride, when proximity gets close like this, when there's transparency and vulnerability and intimacy and relationship, in that mix, unchecked pride produces the environment for us to begin to feel superior about ourselves in relation to those that God has called us to love. That's why Paul says, keep watch on yourself. You got to keep watch on this. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. See, unchecked pride in our heart produces the fruit of self-deception. Do you catch that? If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Unchecked pride deceives us regarding who we really are. It produces in us a, an identity crisis of sorts. This is the reality of the world that we live in. The world that we live in lives in the midst of a tremendous identity crisis. The world that we live in tells you that you were put on this earth to be God's gift to everyone else. You can be anything, do anything. You and yourself really are super duper. You just need to believe it. The problem is you just don't believe it. Well, I was reading an article in the Atlantic Monthly. A secular writer was writing about this culture. And this is what he had to say. And I thought it was really insightful given what Paul's saying here and where we're gonna go. Paul said, that, I mean, this writer said, there have been many of us who have tried to run out into our world with the tinfoil of self-esteem as our armor and have limped back to the field hospital deeply wounded and bewildered. As soon as life lands one solid blow, we double over and find out that maybe we weren't as great as we thought and everyone always told us we were. 
to the greatest danger to gospel culture blooming in the midst of God's people is the presence of unchecked pride. Which is why in verse four, Paul gives us the antidote to this unchecked pride and he also gives us the second apparent contradiction that you had questions about. We'll see if I can do it. Verse four, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. The antidote to the unchecked pride that seeks to unsteady our soul, that seeks to thwart gospel culture amongst God's people, the antidote to it is self-examination. Test your own work. Now that word test there is the same one you see in the rest of the New Testament, even in the Old Testament in in the Hebrew version, talking about how they would test metal to, to test its purity. They would put it in a particular fire, a particular heat, and the impurities would rise to the surface and they could see how pure or unpure the metal actually was. There was an external standard that would measure the purity of the metal. Paul is saying the antidote to unchecked pride that would destroy the steadiness of your soul and the fruit of gospel culture is a self-examination of our heart. The issue that we have to deal with that Paul talks about is where do we look for the external standard? How do we test and measure our work, our life, whether or not we have carried our load well? See, Paul knows the temptation is present in all of our hearts to test our work, to evaluate ourselves by how our neighbor is doing. The interdependence puts us in a proximity where the unchecked pride wants to test our own work by how superior we feel to the person next to us or how inferior we feel to the person next to us. It all depends on how we measure ourselves in accordance to it. So Paul says, watch out. That standard of measuring is a fruit of unchecked pride in your heart. Beware. The standard by which Paul calls us to test our life, to test our work, It's the standard of the law of Christ, the law of love that he's called us to fulfill. You see, as our hearts are anchored in Christ and steadied by the gospel, as we're empowered by the very spirit of God to increasingly produce the fruit of love, there should be noticeable transformation. There should be noticeable fruit of God's spirit in our life. There should be evidences of of God's grace in us that we're able to see. Unchecked pride leads us to test our life, test our work based on how we feel, either inferior or superior to people around us. Paul says, no, 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 no. The gospel calls us to to put that pride to death by testing our work by the presence of God in us and his work through us. Where are the evidences of God's grace? Where can you see them in your own life? How are you different today in comparison to where you were last year? How do you gauge your gentleness, your self-control, your faithfulness, your love? There should be fruit. That's a source of tremendous assurance even for God's people. When you recognize that there's transformation, when you recognize that there's fruit, when you see that there's evidences of God's grace in your life, you don't boast in relation to how superior you feel to others or how inferior you feel to others. You boast in what God has done in you and through you by his grace. You don't boast in anything that you were able to do because you know the fruit of God's spirit in you is produced by him, not you. So you're free to boast. Boasting in what God is doing in you and has done in you by grace. 
his work in you. See, gospel truth is utterly pride slain. We need to be rescued. And we can only be rescued by grace alone. That's why it's so important for us to continue to encourage each other in the gospel. And so what looks like a contradiction here at the end of this section, where Paul says, pay careful attention lest you think you're something when you're nothing, and then says that you have something to boast in yourself. Am I nothing or do I have something to boast in? Am I nothing or is there something in me worth boasting about? Paul says yes and amen. It's no contradiction at all. The gospel says that both are true about you at the same time and both are glorious. So the gospel says that in ourselves, left to ourselves, we are in desperate need and what we're in desperate need for is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, every single day, every single one of us wakes up apart from Christ feeling like in ourselves we're not only incomplete but insignificant. Everyone feels that if you just be quiet enough to listen to yourself. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we wake up recognizing that reality in our heart, which means every single one of us has to define something that we can attain, something that we can have, something we can measure ourselves by so that we can feel like we're something. It can be a job, it can be a relationship, it can be fame, it can be anything, it can be exterior looks, it can be whatever, but whatever that thing is, if I have it, then I'll know I'm something because I wake up every day realizing that left to myself, I'm not. The gospel says you wake up every single day knowing that reality that left to yourself, yeah, you really are nothing. It allows us to admit it. It allows us to own it. It allows us to embrace it because the moment we can recognize that left to ourselves, apart from Christ we're nothing is the moment that in repentance and faith we can cling to him with everything that we are. See, the gospel says you're both at the same time. When you admit that you're nothing and you cling to Christ, it's at that point that God credits the righteousness of Jesus to you, which means you realize that in yourself you're nothing, and yet in him you have everything. It's both at the same time. You can see your nothingness and your completeness. See, every single day, the world that we live in, the world around us, is testing themselves Testing their work, like Paul would say, by comparing their lives against other people's. That's what this boasting in your neighbor means. It doesn't mean that you're boasting about what your neighbor's able to do. It means you're boasting about yourself in relation to your neighbor. Every single day, the world wakes up checking their, their Instagram page, checking their Pinterest page, checking their Facebook page to see how they stack up against everyone else around them. And depending upon what they look at and how they judge it, they either feel superior that day or they feel inferior that day. Paul is saying that people apart from Christ without that anchoring reality of who they are in the gospel wake up the most unsteady people on the face of the earth. The gospel produces the steadiest souls on the face of the earth. It frees us to be the most steady people because we know that in ourselves we're nothing So whenever we see the fruit of God's work in us, whenever the world would see any kind of apparent success in us, we know we're not trapped by it because we know it doesn't make us superior to anybody else because we know we didn't produce it in ourselves. And at the same time, it allows us to see our completeness in Christ so that our failures can't destroy us. We know we have everything we could ever need in him, all the approval we could ever look for in Christ. 
We're not trapped by our apparent success. We're not crushed by our apparent failure. The gospel produces steady souls, free to love, free to live. And gospel truth puts to death the strain of swagger that is rising up in the Christian church. It's another sermon for another time. I don't have time to get into it. Churches, books, radio, there is a swagger and an arrogance that has grown in the evangelical and Christian church that's antithetical to the truth of the gospel. The gospel says you are nothing in yourself, but at that same time, you are everything because you're hidden in Jesus. You have nothing in yourself to boast about. It puts a death, puts to death this idea of swagger. The two can't even go together. But at the same time where the gospel truth takes root and people truly begin to believe it, and gospel culture begins to bloom by the grace of God, God also puts to death the sin, puts to death the sin of comparison. Because as Paul was saying, God has called each of us to live our own lives of obedience. You and I don't have to judge whether we're better or worse than our neighbor. We don't live in the world of comparison anymore. Rather, God gives us the privilege by his grace to encourage one another towards greater faithfulness. To encourage one another towards greater confidence in the gospel. As Peter would say, to stir one another up in the truth of the gospel. That's the privilege that we have with one another. And so this morning as we prepare to respond by receiving communion and reflecting in the spirit of Galatians chapter six, we're gonna give you a moment for self-examination. Each week before we respond to God's word by receiving communion, we take a moment allowing you to reflect on what God has said through his word. We'll be really specific for you this morning. I want you to ask God the Holy Spirit to help you see where he is at work in you and the fruit that he has produced in you, the evidences of his grace in your life. Are you more loving this year than you were last year? Look back at the fruit of his spirit in your life in chapter five. How would you gauge your your gentleness and faithfulness and your self-control? We're gonna give you a moment to reflect, to examine, and then as God's people together, we're gonna respond by receiving communion together this morning, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in your place for your sin. False teachers and gospel distortions will always say that you need Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus your obedience to some external standard. Paul has said over and over and over again in the book of Galatians that those who are truly justified by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they will increasingly fulfill not the law of Moses, not some external standard, it's the law of Christ that they will be living by because our confidence isn't in what we have to do to earn God's love, it's our confidence is in the fact that Jesus has already fulfilled that law for us. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna ask God to help us to see his work in our lives. Then we're gonna respond with joy and thanksgiving as we receive communion, and then we're gonna sing and be sent out from here. Father, we thank you this morning that you are alive and at work in us, You are alive and at work through us, that you have called us into the privilege of being a part of your ministries of restoration and reconciliation and burden bearing. God, we ask that we would be a people that treasure the truth of the gospel, that our hearts individually and together would be increasingly anchored in the reality of who you are for us in your son, 
And Lord, that you would produce here at Redemption Hill the fruit of gospel truth and a gospel culture that reflects your truth and grace to a watching world. Lord, we ask, we ask that you would do that for your glory and our joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.